and welcome to the Power of Sports podcast, where the geeks meet the jocks, but this time there are no wedgies. I'm your host, Aaron Miller, and today in this episode of the show, we will hear from Professor Victor Matheson, who is a professor in the Department of Economics and Accounting at the College of the Holy Cross. Professor Matheson is an expert on sports economics, lotteries and gambling, forensic economics, environmental and energy economics, and is the author of hundreds of textbooks, excuse me, hundreds of articles and many books, including the textbook, The Economics of Sports, with Peter von Allman and Michael Leeds, and published by Rutledge as recently as 2018. Professor Matheson is among a number of economists who argue that the Olympics are not run efficiently and that their costs outweigh their benefits. In fact, I came across Professor Matheson's work after reading the work of Professor Andrew Zimbalist, another sports economist who wrote a book called Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Professor Zimbalist was kind enough to put me in touch with Professor Matheson, and that is fitting because both men have been questioning Olympic economics for years. In recent weeks, the idea that the games could be run differently has become mainstream, with New York Times articles and op-eds calling for the Olympics to be canceled. David Goldblatt, an author who has written about the history of the games, has said that, quote, the Olympics are unreformable, and I think on balance, they do more harm than good, close quote. The event has become very polarizing in Japan, too, where a majority of people do not want the games to go on. In fact, Toyota, perhaps Japan's most important company, will not show ads for its automobiles during the Olympic broadcasts within Japan, although it will show ads outside of Japan. And a spokesman for the company said this week that, quote, various aspects of this Olympics aren't accepted by the public, close quote, which is a very Japanese way of saying we can't be associated with this event because it could ultimately hurt our profits. So the question is, can the Olympic Games be saved? And can the idea of the Olympic movement, that is, the idea that sport may, quote, contribute to building a peaceful and better world by educating youth, without discrimination of any kind, be saved. As we saw in the last episode with Professor Andrew Billings, the Olympics are huge spectacles that make tons of money, and that money-making can only be possible if billions of people draw some sort of joy from them, whether they watch them in person or on television. So let's listen into Professor Maths and explain how we got here, and how much money these mega events cost to run, and whether it's worth it. Professor Matheson, thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. You came highly recommended from Professor Zimbalist, who I don't know personally, but I have a, we have a mutual friend of a friend, and, and he said, you have to call on Professor Matheson. All right, well, I'm glad he's uh, given me a good recommendation here. So where's St. Mary's? St. Mary's is up north, right? Bay Area rather than LA, am I right? You got it, Moraga, California. It is about 10 miles east of Berkeley. Okay, Oakland. so it's on the Oakland side. East Bay, yes. In that area. All right. I gave a lecture over at Cal State uh, East Bay or Hayward, whatever it's You did. Called. I teach uh, there as well, Professor. Where uh, did great. you, were you in the economics department there? 
So I just came uh, for a, a lecture about, again, economics of sports. And through, they had a, they had a free market organization that brought me out because I'm kind of a, not necessarily a super right winger, but limiting the amount of money that goes to sports is right there in my piece there. And I remember I gave this talk and they flew me out there and everything. And we're at dinner afterwards and I had a nice dinner. I'm like, oh, by the way, where did you find the money to bring me all the way out here? And they're like, oh, uh, it's a little bit of internal funds, but it's mostly Koch brother money. I'm like, oh man, if I known it was Koch brothers, I would have ordered a lot better dinner. Like I don't know, a server, a waiter, what, what's the most expensive dessert you have? And they're like, we have this flourless chocolate cake with a flight of ports. And I'm like, oh, I hate port, but I'm definitely getting that. Okay, very good. So brief history. The first Olympic games uh, was in 776 uh, BC. And one of the interesting things about that is that actually historically is one of the very first events we can actually put a date on. So it's uh, by some estimates, it's the earliest actual thing that we know the exact date of. So if you had a time machine, it could go anywhere uh, in the world and anywhere date. This is one of the few things you can say, ah, I know how to get. So 776 uh, BC, uh, chosen to honor the Greek god Zeus. And Olympia was chosen because it was already a religious site. So it wasn't a bidding process between Olympia and Sparta and, and Athens. It was chosen because it was already a site there. So originally, winners given an olive wreath, uh, not gold or silver medals as they do now, because they were supposed to have competed for virtue rather than a monetary gain. But even in ancient Greece, so you may talk about amateur and the Olympic Games, founded with this ideal of amateurism, no longer the case today. But in ancient Greece, athletes were amateurs only in name. So uh, when we think about uh, amateurism as, uh, as it relates to the Olympics, but also as it relates to things like NCAA football, amateurism has always been a myth from the uh, very earliest days. As early as 600 BC, winners from Athens uh, would win uh, 500 drachma. And that's a, a drachma is about a day's wages for a skilled worker. So that's like a year of salary for winning an event. By the second or third century BC, athletes could train full-time year-round. One of the questions we always have with these big mega events, are these a cost or a benefit for the cities that host them? Uh, should these be something that you're thinking about, we're gonna host this so we can make a lot of money? Or is this something we want to do because we, it's an important thing to do uh, and we know it's gonna cost us money to do this? Is this something we're putting on to try to make money or is this something like a wedding that we're gonna have fun at but we know we're not gonna make money on it? During Rome's Republican era, now this is not uh, obviously the Olympics, it's Rome rather than Greece, but these folks called the Adelides uh, organized big events at places like the Colosseum or the uh, Circus Maximus. And uh, the most costly and complex of these things offered opportunities for people to show that they, they knew what's going on. And so it was a way to vet potential civic leaders. Can they raise enough money to do things? And are they organized to put on highly complex events? Kind of, again, a way to uh, put people uh, through a trial or a vetting process to see whether they would be good government leaders. Uh, and of course, uh, lo, lo and behold, that's exactly what we still have today. Uh, that's Mitt Romney, obviously. And Mitt Romney, we're not going to say he you know, came from nowhere. His father was a, the governor of Michigan, and his father almost won the Republican nomination for president back in 68. This guy is pretty pedigreed, Mitt Romney. But Mitt Romney first came onto the national stage by running the Salt Lake City Olympics. So he was a uh, venture capitalist in Boston, uh, came out to the Olympics to basically rescue a, a failing Olympics, and uh, really quite a good job at it. And he parlayed that bit of national fame into the Massachusetts governorship, and then, of course, later into the presidential nomination that he lost to Obama, and then, of course, now a, a senator from Utah. Another example here is the Pan-Athenatic Stadium. So if you ever go to Athens, you can go to this stadium. Uh, this stadium was originally built in 300 BC by the statesman Lycurgos, and he built that as something that he's giving back to 
to the uh, city there. So this is not something where we're building the stadium and we're thinking it's going to make Athens money. This is someone with a lot of money donating this very expensive, not money generating property to the uh, to Athens. And it was rebuilt by Herodes Atticus in 144 AD and put all the marble in there. And so that's uh, you can go to that nowadays. And that was actually used both in the 1896 uh, first modern Olympic Games. It was also used in 2000 for certain events. They had archery in here, for example. Uh, so following the uh, defeat of the French in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, the French wanted to revive the world and these youth, because we always know old people are saying, kids these days, they need to get off my lawn. And they said, look, what we want to do here is we want to give youth these youths these days something to do uh, because they're useless now. That's why we lost the war. So enter Pierre de Coubertin, who wanted to start a national sports movement that would re-energize the French people. First modern games organized by uh, Pierre de Coubertin in 1896 in Athens. And these were generally small affairs. So the first one in Athens, only 250 athletes, 14 countries. That's probably smaller than the athletic program at St. Mary's College. But popular. In 1896, the one, at least one of the events filled up this entire stadium here. And that was, uh, at the time, the large audience to watch a live sporting event in the modern world. So again, popular kind of right from the beginning. Amateurism was enforced because, again, it should be about the honor of doing something rather than the money. Mind you, when you think about something being done for the honor rather than the money, this is wildly segregationist, right? Because only people with a lot of money could participate as athletes. Because if you're middle class, working class, you don't have the time to go out there and practice and do a job and get in the practice you need, unless you can actually make money by doing the sports. So basically, it's a very elitist world where only the very rich and the independently wealthy can actually participate. This also caused a rift with FIFA, which is also forming around this time. So FIFA, the big international soccer organization, obviously. FIFA said, look, all of our best athletes are all professional now. We're starting to get professionalization of uh, sports. First professional sports league is coming around in the early 1870s in the United States with Major League Baseball. Uh, Cincinnati Reds, actually the first team. Uh, we're starting to get some professional football teams in the U.S. in the early 1900s. Professional basketball doesn't come until 1950s, 1940s. Professional hockey is starting in about 1920-ish. So professional soccer is here. And FIFA says, look, we don't want to be part of your organization if we can't feature our best athletes. And so FIFA breaks out, and that's how we get a separate a World Cup separate from the Olympics. Again, fairly low cost. Now, London's an aberration because it's so low, but uh, London, the entire Olympics in 1948 cost $30 million. My own institution, Holy Cross, spend, I, and this is in today, in $30 million, that's less than Holy Cross spends on athletics in a particular year. One low-level D1 college. So again, that's abnormally low, but again, we're not talking about these big affairs that we're seeing today. 1936 Berlin is a huge piece here because the Olympics becomes much more than a sporting event, but rather than a nationalistic showcase. It costs 10 times more than any previous Olympic Games and twice as much as every single Olympics combined up to that point. Uh, so this is an idea of moving the Olympics beyond something that you do and you try to maybe break even. It's something that you are doing this Olympic Games as bragging rights, not as a way to make money. Hitler's doing this. Why is Berlin doing this? Obviously, because Hitler's trying to showcase the Aryan power and the great cultural and political power of Germany. Of course, Jesse Owens had something to say about that and famously, as a Black athlete, beat the Aryan uh, runners from Germany with Hitler actually watching and again, comes, becomes one of the first great American sports heroes. Other transformative Olympics that are very important, 1960, uh, 1964, Rome and Tokyo, first time Olympics are used 
as an excuse for major urban renewal as well. So everything else, you're putting an Olympics in a site and you're doing whatever you can to put on all the events with what you have there. And you've got this Olympics in Germany that builds these green land for these things. And then in 60 and 64 in Tokyo, it's not just about building the stadiums. It's about redoing all your streets, redoing your airports, redoing your subways and things like that. So it's the first one where we have a, a Olympics used as a major economic driver, not just about, again, just putting on a sport. A huge rising cost here. So these are all in U.S. dollars here. The costs of the early Olympics are so low that they barely even show up on the list here. Here's Berlin. You can at least see Berlin. That's about a billion dollars. But starting here again in Rome and Tokyo, you're starting to see some really expensive games where we start exceeding $10 billion. And of course, by the time we get to Beijing, that's a $45 billion Olympics. Rio here. I have not put Japan on here because we don't know where that one's going to end up, but probably somewhere up here at about 30 billion dollars is where that was. We have some real setbacks in terms of being able to run these things in an efficient manner. We both have both economic and social disaster. The first big one is 1972 in Munich, where we have Israeli athletes who were killed by terrorists during the course of the games. A uh, big decision was made about whether to cancel the games or go on, and they decided to go on. But again, the first time we're seeing this as this international target for terrorism, and then we have an economic disaster in 1976 in, in Montreal, a famous quote by Jean Drapeau, who was the mayor of Montreal at the time, saying, the Olympics can no more lose money than a man can have a baby. Of course, he said that in French, but Montreal becomes the biggest financial disaster to date uh, up to that time in uh, terms of, of an Olympic Games. Now we've got this big cost explosion here. By the last 20 years or so, We've got these gigantic cost explosions here. We got Beijing at $45 billion. We got London at $14 billion. And, and the taxpayers are totally unprepared for this. For example, London originally came in with a bid at about $4 billion. Then two years after they won the bid, they uh, said it's going to cost $15 billion. And then when it came in at only $14.6 billion, they said, hey, we came in under budget. Yeah, they came in under budget, but only because they increased the budget by $11 billion after having been awarded the games. And of course, we see this again and again. When I say Nagano, unknown, literally it's unknown because the last thing the organizer, event organizers did after the Nagano Winter Games in, in Japan there is to burn all the records. And I am not making, making that up. They actually, their last official act as an Olympic organizing committee was to destroy all financial records of the, of the event. We don't really even know that answer. Uh, we've got Sochi there. Obviously, you can see a couple things here. These gigantically expensive games like Beijing and Sochi occurring in dictatorships where these are clearly uh, prestige events uh, trying to prop up folks like Putin and the Communist Party in, in Beijing rather than real capitalist money-making pieces here. But again, every recent Olympics that we're seeing here is well north of $10 billion, and we don't even know exactly what Tokyo is going to Professor Matheson, can I just interrupt really quickly about the Nagano games? I read that in your Absolutely. article, and I was so fascinated by that. Do we know who burned them? Yeah, the uh, the organizing committee themselves, right? So the way the economics works is there's the International Olympic Committee that basically holds the rights to the I concept and idea of the Olympics, and they hire a specific organizing committee every four years for the summer and every four years for the winter to actually put on the event. And so the folks that actually put on that event burned all the records about what it actually cost to put that event on. Now, if we can get records about what 
the IOC's role in that was. We have all that because the IOC may be corrupt and may be evil and maybe some things, but they are good record keepers. So we're not going to, and, and trust me, no matter what I say about the IOC, man, when you hear tomorrow's speaker, he's, I'm going to seem like a pussycat compared to him. Yeah. But again, destroyed by the local organizing committee who put all the stuff on local. So the question is, why so expensive? So here's the issue here. First of all, the size and the scope in the event is huge. There's 33 separate sports. Think about any big city. Think about San Francisco or the Bay Area. Think about LA. Think about Boston. Yeah, you can have an A's game, right? And you could also have the A's playing at the same time the Warriors are playing over in San Francisco. And you could also have another game there at the baseball team. You can go all the way down to Santa Clara and do something at Levi Stadium. You can do something at Berkeley Stadium. But eventually, once you've got 33 separate sports, you are becoming very constrained in these sort of places that you have to run these things. You have a huge amount of personnel here. You have over 11,000 athletes for normal games, as well as at least 46,000 other people coming in. That's sports officials. That's people who are like the president of U.S. soccer or the president of U.S. gymnastics, if they can get out of jail, those sort of things, right? So you have a huge amount of that, and that's even before you get the regular tourists coming in here. So, for example, L.A. and Tokyo, and L.A. is huge. L.A. and Tokyo, huge cities, right? These are gigantic cities, and they have about 100,000 hotel rooms. You start filling up those hotel rooms pretty quick once you're talking about 46,000 dignitaries coming up. And so you get full pretty quick. And, again, we're talking about hotel rooms for us. Now, this is obviously a lie here, but the Nikkei Asian Review estimated that 10 million people were going to come to the Tokyo Games. Uh, obviously, that's wildly unlikely unless they're all fitting 100 people per room. And there's only about 10 million tickets available for the Olympics. Uh, so that means everyone coming in for this would have gone to exactly one game. That is, that's an extremely unusual way to uh, do the Olympics. But we see uh, kind of ridiculous numbers like this pretty often being thrown out there. Other issue is specialized facilities. Again, every big city in the United States has a facility that's good enough to host a World Cup soccer game in. And the Bay Area has probably four or five uh, facilities that you could legitimately hold uh, World Cup because these are pretty standardized facilities. You could do it at Levi Stadium. You could do it at uh, Oakland Stadium. You could do it at Berkeley. There's lots of places you could do this. But the Olympics has all these very specialized sports that we don't have these sort of facilities for. No city has a world-class velodrome. They just don't. No city has a world-class auditorium. That's a the swimming facility, right? Uh, strangely, no city in the world other than Los Angeles uh, has a stadium big enough uh, and wide enough to actually put a full-size Olympic track in because no modern stadium wants the fans so far away from the action, right? So modern stadiums for soccer and football are much, much narrower so you can get the fans right on top of the action, but that means there's not enough room uh, in uh, there for a track. So when Boston was considering uh, hosting the Olympics, uh, we were going to actually have to spend $400 million on a, a stadium for the track and field events, even though we already had in the city five stadiums that city over 50,000 people, but none of them were big enough to hold a world-class track. So again, specialized facilities are, are super problematic. It also means that there's not a lot of use for them afterwards. Security costs. So here's the security costs. It's always been expensive. But again, we've had two terrorist incidents that have killed people at Olympic uh, Games over the last uh, couple decades, Atlanta and in Munich. In Sydney, though, they spent $250 million on security in, in 2000. In Athens in 2004, they spent $1.6 billion, and it's been roughly that amount. If we know any history here, we know why uh, and what happened there, right? So 9-11 is happening in between there, 
and that all of a sudden uh, makes these uh, extremely expensive to secure. Yesterday, I was on a on a panel, and I didn't get to directly debate him, but I was on the uh, panel with Dick Pound, who's one of the vice presidents of the IOC, and he was saying that you can run the Olympic Games just on the tickets. And it's not really our fault that these cities spend so much on facilities and all this other stuff, because you can do the Olympics just on the ticket sales. But that's a total lie, right? You can't even pay for the security with ticket sale costs, right? The average amount that the Olympics spends to make spectators and athletes safe is $100 per ticket sold. So so just to cover the security costs, imagine going to a handball game, a team handball game, $22 plus Ticketmaster fees of $72 because we know Ticketmaster plus a $100 convenience security fee is really what it would cost to host these games. Sorry, Professor, but yeah, go ahead, just Aaron. to interrupt really quickly, but Dick Pound, of all people, should know. Yes, and again, I did not have a good chance to uh, really interact with him. But Dick Pound also said, we want to put on this Olympics because it's important for the world. It's not for financial reasons. When Dick Pound says, we're going 100% full ahead on the Tokyo Olympics, and it's not about the money, Dick Pound is lying. Just uh, so you know, Dick Pound, a VP, he's one of the vice uh, VPs of the IOC, Canadian. Uh, so he's very polite. It's really hard to hammer him because he's very polite. But a Canadian swimmer, so he was a swimmer in the 60s for Canada and is now the highest uh, ranking guy in Canada in their Olympic family. Also pressure among bidders, and this is a huge issue. And this is why at least uh, there's at least a thread of what uh, Dick says is right. Uh, It's certainly not right, but it's at least a thread. Uh, Pressure among bidders, which has totally been supported by the IOC. But by the time it came to bid for the 1984 Olympics, there's also one more piece I didn't put in here. In 1976, the Olympics were awarded to Denver and Denver said, no, thank you. And gave them back after taxpayers said, we don't want the inconvenience of hosting the Olympics. So we had three disasters here for the IOC all in a row. And when it came time to find a host city for 1984, Los Angeles was the only one who stepped up. And because Los Angeles was the only bidder, it means that Los Angeles was in the driver's seat here, not the IOC. And they said, look, we're not spending a bunch of money on this event. You know what we're going to use for the Olympic Stadium? Not some brand new bicycle helmet crazy thing uh, like Tokyo. What we're going to do is we're going to use the Rose Bowl and the Coliseum, facilities we used back in 1932 when we had the Olympics before. We're building nothing new. We're using everything that we have already. If we have to build a handful of things just because we don't have a velodrome, we'll do it. Otherwise, we're not doing it. And if that's if you have a problem with that, go put on your own Olympics. Strangely, the IOC has absolutely zero ability to put on Olympic Games. They have no skills and no money and no ability to actually put on the games that they host, right? So they have to have a city that's uh, and a uh, local organizing committee willing to do that for them. And L.A. was able to do it on the super cheap and L.A. totally commercialized it. They said, if we can sell things, we're going to sell it. This is not about amateurism for us, at least. We're going to make as much money as we can. And McDonald's is going to be a sponsor and Budweiser is going to be a sponsor. And everyone we can figure out to sell stuff to, we're going to do it. And lo and behold, their costs remarkably low, $1.3 billion. That's less than Tokyo is spending on its national stadium alone up making this huge profit on this. But now that all these cities see that it's possible to make a big profit on the Olympics, now you get all these bidders in. But now that you've got all these bidders in, the uh, IOC is back in the driver's seat and can say, oh, 
If you want to host the Olympics, it's not enough just to be able to put on 33 separate sports with 11,000 athletes. We also want gold plated toilet seats for uh, all the IOC members. We want fruit baskets in our rooms of all out of season fruit every day. We want, we want you to shut down all of your roads to accommodate Olympic athletes asking for the world. And you can do it if you've got lots of tickets. Okay, so here are the money pieces. So this is actually 2012 rather than 2016, but things haven't changed so much. And of course, 2020 is totally out the window in how this works. The way the, uh, it works here is the IOC controls the broadcasting rights and they keep that money. They are allowed to share this money if they would like, but they generally don't. They also have some international sponsors. So this is some of these big global sponsors, things like MasterCard, things like Budweiser, things like the Air American Airlines Group or something like that. And they make some money on these sponsorships. In London in 2012, that totaled about $3 billion. They make another, say, billion, billion and a half on the Winter Olympics. And this is basically all the money the IOC makes over a four-year period. So if this doesn't come in, they don't make any money for that four-year period. So they are desperate to make sure 2021 goes off because they want this big check, which is probably 50% bigger in 2020 than it was uh, in 2012. The organizers get all the money from the tickets. Whatever the local organizers can sell in tickets, they get to keep. That's about a billion dollars in London. It was planned to be about a billion dollars in Tokyo. They have domestic sponsors, right? So these are local companies that can be the official group of the Olympics, as long as they don't conflict in a huge way with the international sponsors. And then licensing, also like an official shirt uh, and that sort of stuff that you buy. That totals about, up about $2 billion. Mind you, these two things together, that's about $5 billion. That is way less than any of these recent Olympics have cost. But if you really worked hard and to keep that money down and the IOC gave over a huge amount of their broadcasting rights to a local organizing group, you could come pretty close to maybe covering the hosting costs if you were lucky. Again, Tokyo looks pretty similar, although domestic sponsorships were way higher in Tokyo than we've ever seen, something like three or $4 billion. I don't know exactly how to explain that and whether it's likely to be the case in Paris and LA moving forward, but the domestic sponsors were huge. Hey, that's a quick question. Okay. About just another thing that the local organizers might be considering, stuff like sales taxes, you can do on the hotel rooms, any domestic airline, they might come in, taxes that come off jobs might be created because the Olympic Games. How much do you think that those sort of things would generate for the host Okay, country? that's a great question. So that's exactly what our next slide is. So thank you, Cam. So here are the direct revenues that are coming into the Basically, the company that's organized, that's created to organize the Olympics. That company can either be a private company, as happened in 1984 in Los Angeles, or it could basically be a wing of the local government, as in Sochi or in Beijing. But we also have indirect benefits of the games, which are exactly what Cam would be talking about. It would be any sort of benefits that, that accrue to the economy as a whole, from things like tourism, from things like people buying uh, hotel rooms, restaurant meals, retail sales, anything else in the local economy that they could be spending money on. And now mind you, that might not go to the organizing committee, but some of that money will be going to, again, the just general people of the area. And some of that may be going to the government as well, depending on uh, what sort of taxation you have. That being said, the economic benefit of uh, stadiums, teams, and events tends to be much smaller than one might guess. 
And I guess if I want you to remember any one thing of my entire lecture, it would be this, because it generalizes to every type of sport, every type of event, every type of team. I was just talking to someone about this, actually, about the All-Star Game in Atlanta that got moved out for, for voter suppression reasons, right? And again, the same sort of things that I'm going to talk about here apply to all these. Again, Oakland A's potentially moving out of your sort of area there, all of this sort of stuff. is So economic impact of all these things is much smaller than one might guess. Why? Number one is the substitution effect. The substitution effect happens when locals shift around their money. So if a local person spends money at a sporting event, that is money being spent at a sporting event rather than elsewhere in the economy. Because people who, uh, if there was not that sporting event there, those local people would still be spending money elsewhere in the economy, just not at the sporting event, right? So uh, substitution effect is a big deal. Most economists think we shouldn't put local money being spent on sporting events into any sort of economic impact because locals just shift around where money is spent. Uh, so for example, one uh, study that I did looked at hotels and restaurants in Salt Lake City during the Winter uh, Olympics. And we found that lo and behold, during the Winter Olympics, lots more spending is occurring at uh, restaurants and hotels as people are coming in from outside, but also locals spending money like in the area around, around the venues. But retail sales were way down. So that's people redirecting their money from buying stuff at Target and Walmart to buying stuff at Olympic venues. So you have to take out what they're not spending other places and account for what they're spending at the Olympics. Second, what's known as crowding out. Famously, Yogi Berra said, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. Obviously that's a crazy statement, right? But there's an element of truth there. In 2012, all of the big London shows shut down for the Olympics because generally there's a huge summer theater rush in London. Everyone goes on vacation. London's the most popular tourist destination in Europe. And they go to things like, again, the London equivalent of Broadway shows, right? With the Olympics in town, all those shows shut down because the regular patrons couldn't get there. So yeah, money was being spent on sports, but money was not being spent on, on theater and those things canceled each other out. In Utah during the Winter Olympics, it turns out that the Winter Olympics were great for ski resorts in Colorado because everyone who actually wanted to go ski avoided Utah like the plague. People who wanted to watch skiing went to Utah, but they took up all of the hotel rooms and all of the, and all the condos. And so anyone who wanted to actually go on a ski vacation went to Colorado instead. So huge uh, changes there. And then there's leakages. So leakages are when money is spent in a place but doesn't stick there. Examples of that are things like national hotel chains. If you go uh, to uh, the Hyatt during the Olympics, Room prices are going to be super expensive, but they're not going to be doubling or tripling the wages they pay to the local desk clerks and room cleaners. That's all going back in corporate profits and uh, back to corporate headquarters. So that's money that doesn't stick in the local economy. Imported workers, we see a lot of this as well happen during the Olympics. You import a bunch of people for a very short time during the Olympics to, so you have enough labor. I was, for example, in Houston a couple of years ago when the Super Bowl was there. And uh, one of the Uber drivers I had while I was there was from San Antonio. And he was just in, in town for the Super Bowl because he knew there was going to be surge pricing. And uh, so he came down and stayed with his sister 
And so this is money that's being spent in Houston, but none of it was actually sticking in Houston, right? So this wasn't benefiting the Houston economy. It was benefiting a totally different economy outside. Now, here's one example of this, uh, trying to measure this, uh, measuring the economic impact of the Rio games, trying to figure out basically how many people are even coming into the country for a big mega event. And we see this regular seasonal pattern. This is the number of international arrivals into Brazil over about two decades. And there's a big seasonal pattern here every year in January, February, March. That's their big high time. Uh, and then we have the World Cup here. And the World Cup actually did have this big economic impact where we had lots of people coming in that way more than we would normally see, at least in large part because we had this huge surge of people from Argentina. But if we notice this uh, here for the Olympics, the Olympics uh, here is a comparable month in an earlier year of about 400,000 international tourists. During the Olympic year, is only about 500,000 Olympic tourists. So again, we're not talking about a gigantic, our total international tourists. We're not talking about a huge increase in the total amount of tourism happening. However, it is likely that there was way more than uh, 100,000 tourists for the Olympics. It's just that a large number of those displaced other tourists who would have been coming to Brazil. Uh, so here's uh, what economists like me do. We actually try to look at the predictions that were made, and then we actually try to look back at, at cities that have hosted the Olympics to see if we can find this big spike in economic activity by any way we can measure it. And sometimes we find it, the Olympics is big enough that we usually do find it, but it tends to be a, a fraction of the size that was claimed. So for example, this is a study I did on the Summer Olympics. 77,000 new jobs were predicted and I got a number somewhere between 3,500 to 42,000. That's a huge range, but these things uh, tend to be hard to measure. Another study that was in the uh, article that I, I showed, that I gave you was more like 29,000. So that's in the higher range of what I came up with there. Uh, Winter Olympics in Utah, this is actually the one I like best because it's this nice narrow range and it's less than a fifth of what was predicted. Uh, so. Those are what some of the economists would look after. Okay, so there could be some intangible uh, benefits. One is what's known as the feel-good effect. It's a big party, so uh, parties make people happy. There is some evidence that's the case. A couple people who I do trust, uh, Dawson's a really good economist, so says Szymanski. I don't know the others as well. And they're finding a couple billion dollars maybe of happiness that's being generated by this, and not necessarily by the people going to the games, because we can capture their happiness by selling them a ticket, right? If the ticket's going to make them really happy, we can charge more for the ticket. But these are people who are not going to the games, who are just happy to be around the spectacle. And a couple billion dollars, uh, a couple billion pounds, actually, in these cases. But again, the total cost of hosting the Olympics in London was about $15 billion. We're talking about numbers about 2 billion uh, pounds or about two and a half billion dollars, nowhere near enough to actually cover the difference between the costs and the revenue. And so if we're not gonna get benefits right during the event, we better have some legacy benefits from this. Uh, so uh, one legacy benefit could be tourism. And we actually do maybe see this for Barcelona. It's the one that I can think of that really does work. In 1990, before they hosted the Olympics, they were the 13 most popular destination in the, in the EU. Less than half as many tourist nights as neighboring Madrid. Uh, 20 by 20 years later, after the Olympics, they were the fifth most popular destination in the EU and had eclipsed Madrid as the top destination in Spain. I can definitely tell you that when I was in college, no one would have said, oh, I'm going to go to Spain. And first of all, they said, well, who goes to Spain? First of all, second of all, you never would have said, oh, I'm going to go to Barcelona. They would have said, ah, I, I, I heard that's a city, but no one would have gone there on tourism. And so again, Barcelona had this opportunity to advertise its city to the world. 
and, uh, and tourists liked what they saw. Salt Lake City had some of this as well. They had a 20% uh, increase in skier visits in the 15 years basically after the Olympics compared to only an 8% increase in neighboring Colorado. So again, maybe some advertising there. I like to call this the hidden gem theory. If you have something to offer that people don't know about, then advertising is, gonna, is likely to be highly effective. In a place like Atlanta, it's not going to work because uh, Atlanta is always going to be Atlanta, right? And no one from Europe is going to say, hey, you know what? I was thinking about going to the United States and I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to go to Disney World and Atlanta said no tourists from Europe ever. Okay. So, you know, you have to have something to offer tourists as well. And London doesn't benefit from this either because you can't say, man, we need the Olympics to put London on the map because if London is not on your map, you really need to get yourself a new map. Okay? So you have to have this perfect combination like Barcelona had of being relatively unknown, but also having great things to offer. Infrastructure benefits. So the Olympics may create the political will to make necessary infrastructure decisions. So again, the great thing about Barcelona, they spent a bunch of money, but most of it was on general infrastructure and very little was on sports infrastructure. So they did a huge amount of work on basically transforming their old decaying hard scrabble harbor district into an inviting tourist area and basically gentrifying their kind of old industrial base. And that was highly effective for them. So very expensive Olympics, but again, spending it on general infrastructure. I would point out that you are able to do infrastructure without having to have an Olympics. So I think most Economists would say, these are so great, then just do them. Same thing with Greece. Uh, Greece had subway venues, built a subway out of it. Their venues are all a disaster, but they did get some kind of long run stuff. Like you can take the subway from the airport uh, into downtown, which is a real advantage. Professor Matheson, can I ask a question right there? Is the political will that seems to be generated by the Olympics, is that instrumental in getting through these infrastructure projects or? Yeah, so, so the argument is, and I don't know how great an argument this is, but it's that we, everyone knows we need to do these things. And it's the kind of the executioner's acts of we need to get these done by the time the Olympics are done is what really uh, gets these projects done. I don't know how much that's true, but it's certainly trotted out as an idea. There's certainly some of that, but again, if these things are really so useful, you should be doing them without the uh, without an Olympics. And if you need the Olympics to do them, maybe you didn't need them that much in the first. And, and not every type of general infrastructure is a great thing. So like in Rio, they spent like $2 billion extending one of their subway lines, but they extended the subway line to a place that really people don't live and people who live there don't use the subway. So again, just because it's general infrastructure doesn't mean uh, that it's something that's automatically good. Uh, you can overspend on infrastructure just as easily as you can understand. Uh, so again, stadium spillovers, uh, you, when you get stadiums, stadiums are, are a pretty terrible investment in general. So the hope is that you end up with something like this. So this is Wrigley Field, and it's right there in Wrigleyville. And because it's built into the grid here, you have this big entertainment district all that has grown up around the hundred years that Wrigley Field has been there. We got Murphy's Bleachers and we got the Cubby Bear and we got Campeche and we got the Metro. So all these nice places. I used to live right there. That was my house uh, there. And so a great entertainment neighborhood. The problem is the reality is uh, often like this. So this is uh, White Sox, Comiskey Field, uh, U.S. Cellular Field. And here you have something where you basically have this walled fortress surrounded by a mode of parking lots. It doesn't generate any sort of spillover effects at all. And this is all too common. This is Joe, this is the World Cup in Johannesburg. This is where the World Cup final was played. Not a whole lot of 
spontaneous development in this area here. We got a couple big buildings, but no general development around this area. This is the bird's nest and the water cube, the big facilities that were used for the Beijing Olympics. We could zoom in right here and you would not see a single person on this. You can see lots of traffic on this street here. You can see lots of traffic here, lots of traffic here. No actual people anywhere in the uh, site here. This is, and we're not taking this like on Easter morning or some sort of a crazy day when people aren't around. Literally a gigantic area that's essentially widely underused. This has now been turned into a water park. This is Maracanã Stadium, the iconic stadium in Rio. Again, fall into disrepair just a year after the Olympics. Last thing we'll talk about here is sometimes it has been argued that there are legacy benefits associated with this, that you're an investment, that you're a country that has arrived and that there is this actually fairly strong correlation between hosting Olympics and things like foreign direct investment into your country. Uh, the problem is even bidding for an Olympics increases that. And so it doesn't seem like the Olympics is doing something. It's got to be something else. Rosenspiegel are, are saying that this is a signal that a country is open for business. The problem with this is other people have looked at this. And when you choose host and bidding countries, if they're compared to otherwise similar countries that did not bid, all these positive effects uh, disappear. So what you're getting here is the sort of people who decide to host or bid for the Olympics are not a random sample of countries around the world, right? There's a, what's called selection bias. Countries that really think they have a pretty prosperous future ahead of them are the sort of people who are disproportionately likely to bid. And so guess what? They tend to do pretty well. So Tokyo was the last kind of what we would call a normal bidding cycle. In, the, in bidding for 2022 Winter Games, Krakow, Poland, Lviv, and Ukraine, Stockholm, that's not, shouldn't be Olsen, that's Oslo. And Munich all withdrew from the bidding process due to a lack of popular support. That's a little unfair. Lviv got pulled because they got invaded by Russia. But besides that, all these others, people, the people were asked, hey, do you want the Olympics? And they all said no. Okay. And they, it was all that was left is Almaty and Beijing, located in countries with dictatorships, not known for actually taking popular support into into. A, uh, in bidding for the 2024 games, Budapest, Hamburg, Boston, Rome, all again withdrew from bidding, leaving only LA and Paris in the running. The IOC, fearing that they would get no one to actually come and bid for the 2028 games, actually did the unprecedented case of awarding the 2028 games to Paris and awarding the 2028 games to LA without even going through the formal bidding process. They just said, LA, it's all yours without actually opening it up to bids. Let's talk about COVID. Great, and we'll have a few minutes for questions too. So COVID, a couple of pieces here. So first of all, we're going to reduce ticket sales by about a billion dollars. It's not clear whether the venues will be open for, for, for fans, almost certainly not at full capacity. Very unlikely that they're going to have a huge amount of additional vaccination within the next. We're going to talk about reduced ticket sales by about a billion dollars because they're just simply not going to sell many. Already, uh, you've already reduced all international tourism to zero. So no international tourists are allowed in, at the events at all. That may be about a billion dollars of revenue being lost by not necessarily the local organizing committee, but the overall economy in Japan. Because you don't have people in the venues, the people who are buying these sponsorships don't want to pay as much for them and we'll renegotiate the sponsorships based on what we've seen with other events that have been ghost games uh, sponsorships are likely to be down by 30 percent that would be about a billion dollars for the uh, local organizing committee and costs have increased by about the latest number i saw was 2.3 billion dollars was the estimate that's because you had to keep a bunch of temporary venues open for another year you had to put take a bunch of temporary staff 
keep them on staff for another year. All of the testing, you have to keep athletes for a much longer period of time so they can quarantine. All the testing procedures went through. So there's a very expensive procedure, about $2.3 billion. Again, conversion delays, rebooking. They had sold some of their venues off already and they had to unsell them. That's problematic. Total In total, we're talking about $5 billion worse off. Uh, but remember, this is an event that was already $15 billion in the hole, right? So uh, if anyone wants to come and say, if only we hadn't been so unlucky with COVID, that can't possibly be our fault. Things would have been fine. This was a disaster, a total economic disaster before we had anything related to, to COVID. COVID has simply uh, been icing on the cake here. wrap up our show for the day. I'm very grateful to Professor Matheson for taking the time to share his research findings with our colloquium and also for allowing me to share them with you. As Professor Matheson made clear, the question of whether the Olympics are worth it or not depends on one's economic perspective and on one's political views. Do you believe that governments should leverage the games to get infrastructure projects done? Do you believe that they should leverage the games to build a legacy? And if so, what should that legacy be? Those who run the Olympics believe that the legacy is the Olympic movement itself, which is, again, the idea to, quote, contribute to building a peaceful and better world by educating youth without discrimination of any kind, close quote. But with so many controversies over this upcoming summer games in Tokyo, from triathletes swimming in the dirty waters of Tokyo Bay to marathoners running in unsafe summer heat, from Olympic leaders disparaging women for talking too much in meetings, to Olympic music composers admitting to bullying disabled people, and from COVID-19 concerns of a super spreader event, to the general feeling that the games do not do right by the citizens of the cities who host them, the question remains about whether the games should go on. To be honest, I'm personally torn. I love sports and I've always loved watching the Olympics. My mother is an athlete and we have bonded watching many swimming, track, and gymnastics events over the years, but the more I've learned about the corruption that plagues the games and the more I've learned about how they seem to steal from the poor to pay the rich, the more I do not want to be a part of them. So I'm curious what you think, and I'd be eager to hear from you. Can the Olympics be saved? Can we return to a time in which amateurs play for pride, honor, or virtue? Is that even possible in a world where we can see elitism so easily on social media? The venues and cities that host the games will likely continue to be the subject of debate since some want to limit costs by holding the games in one place, and others want to rotate the games to a small number of cities which already have the infrastructure to host. But if we did that, then the cities and nations that would benefit would be even shorter than it is now. For various reasons, from economic to environmental, it certainly makes sense to host in one of two spots all the time, but that is a huge burden on the people of Los Angeles or London or whichever city or cities get selected. There's no doubt that a more democratic and transparent process would be nice, and public referenda would go a long way to make sure that only cities that want the Olympic prestige, excitement, and yes, traffic, get them. And at the end of the day, even if one were to say that the games in their current form are corrupt to the point that we should dismantle them or stop them altogether, there may be too much on the line for too many people to realistically believe that they will ever be canceled. If Tokyo 2021 has taught us anything, 
And if it has any legacy at all, it is that, don't you think? The Olympics seem unstoppable, like Michael Phelps in a swimming pool. Stay tuned for another episode on the Olympics when we talk to Roy Tomizawa about the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and its legacy. Thank you again very much for listening and have a great rest of your day.